welcome to Team Up, a podcast where we talk about team-based primary care in British Columbia. I'm Sarah Fletcher with the Innovation Support Unit in the Department of Family Practice at UBC. And today we'd like to share the webinar recorded on April 22nd that focused on psychological safety in highly functioning teams. In this webinar, April Price discusses some of the key concepts behind psychological safety and leads the group through a number of activities that really highlight actionable ideas that can be implemented on the ground to enhance psychological safety for teams. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Thank you for taking your time out of uh, your busy schedules to join us today. Welcome to our eighth webinar in the Team Up Learning series titled Tools for Teams Exploring Psychological Safety. My name is Kelly Giesbrecht. I'm a leader for primary and community care with the health system improvement team at the council. I'll be your host and moderator today. I'm joining from my home office located in Prince George, BC, where I live, work, and play on the unceded traditional territory of the Klaitli Tanay. I welcome you to take a moment to recognize the traditional territories where you are situated. Team Up Primary and Community Care in Action is a learning series developed collaboratively by the BC Patient Safety and Quality Council and the UBC Innovation Support Unit and delivered on behalf of Team-Based Care BC. I am joined today by colleagues from both the Council and the ISU and our colleagues at the Innovation Support Unit turn these sessions into podcasts. I highly recommend taking time to listen to the podcast and related discussion for this and the other Team Up podcasts as you may pick up on something new. At our February webinar on high-functioning teams, Psychological safety was the element that you indicated you wanted to explore more. Our presenter today is April Price, leader for health system improvement at the council, who was recently involved in delivering the teamwork and communication action series. She's adapted some of that content for today's talk. Before I hand it over to April, if you're able, I invite you to pause, take a few deep breaths, and even close your eyes if that's comfortable for you, and give yourself permission to let go of your to-do list, any unanswered emails, and any upcoming meetings to be fully present for this time you have set aside in your day to learn and participate in this conversation. Over to you, April. Thank you, Kelly. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for having me here today. I am so excited to spend the next hour with you talking about such an important topic of psychological safety. I'll share with you, I am a Northern girl and I lived the first half of my life in Quesnel and the second half of my life in Prince George. But I am so grateful now to be living in Vernon, BC, where I am very blessed to live, work and play on the ancestral, traditional and unceded territory of the Silks Nation. So thanks again for the lovely intro, Kelly, and we'll get right into it. So we're gonna do a deeper dive today into some of those non-technical skills really talk about how things like power distance index, mitigated speech, silence, and triangulation are all these contributors and effects of psychological safety. But first, we're going to have a quick chat about how culture has such an impact on healthcare and psychological safety. So I want you to take a minute. I would like to hear from you about how you would define culture. Way of living. Inclusive, social norms, yes, life. 
We've learned to enable, yes, way of being, excellent. The norms, yes, and we work and live. Unspoken rules. Some of these around. Feeling of an environment, that's a great one. We, we do things around here, how we do things around here. Customs, values, traditions. Perfect. Thank you. Great sharing, you guys. I This is really interesting just to hear everyone's perspective on, on culture. And Katie's going to take a quick screenshot of... Um, all the things that we do share today so that we can add those to the slides um, and again, have them available for people afterwards. When I think about having a really great day at work, I'm actually not thinking about the, the content necessarily, the, the technical aspects of what I did, but more about the culture and that it was a positive culture. So there's actually not one true definition for culture. In fact, back in 1952, even, we had two researchers, Kroeber and Kluckhorn, who found 164 definitions, and that was over 60 years ago. But ultimately, culture is everything that you were putting up on that screen. So the way we think, it's our values, our attitudes, our perceptions, our beliefs about how we act those habits that we have, what are our typical behaviors. But most importantly, it's not about one person, it's about the, the sum of everyone when it comes to our culture. So sometimes culture can be a really tough thing for us to wrap our heads around and to describe. And so because of the visible signs of culture, so the environment, those behaviors, how people interact and the way we do things, it can be totally influenced by those invisible causes that sometimes take a really long time to understand. So most likely many of you have moved into teams that, you know, where the culture has a lot of history that really has nothing to do with you, but it still totally defines your work experience. So changing that culture can be such an overwhelming thing to think about. And if we can break it down and even think about just the day-to-day -day climate and how we can change that, it can feel a little bit more doable to tackle the culture as a whole. We can sometimes think culture and joy at work aren't really important or as valuable as the technical aspects of our work. So we can all and tend to think that, that they can't be changed even. So when we talk, we often create this separation between the technical and non-technical aspects of our work. Again, culture is super complex. And so this illustration of this iceberg by Edgar Sheen shows how culture is really split across various levels. So Sheen describes those artifacts at the top as those visible signs of culture, so the symbols, logos, brands, could be our uniforms, our mission, stories that we have. And then there's also the values within the organization. And these values are both stated and felt. And then underlying is the basic assumptions, which is the majority of the culture that's hidden really below the surface. And this is actually which, what shapes how the organization operates. 
but it's unconscious and sometimes can be taken for granted. And so with an understanding of this and these layers of culture to help create a description that's recognizable by management and, and even others in the organization and your team. So I want you to think about what are some of the distinctive characteristics that you think make distinguishing characteristics of a health organization culture. And just keep those in mind as we're working through the webinar today. And really thinking too about within our organizations, whether they're small and there's large, there's whether it's small or large um, organizations, there's these subcultures. And so that's our, our teams, our units that make up these subcultures. So that's the way, like you were putting on the slide, the way we do things on our team, the way we do things around here. But there is that, there's a direct interrelationship between organizational culture and psychological safety. So really understanding one's organizational and team culture is one way then to think about whether or not it needs to change based on what we know about best practice. So really digging into the role culture plays um, into psychological safety. So the fastest way that we can shift culture and really improve outcomes is to hone in on some of those non-technical skills. So three main ones are leadership, which is super essential for high-performing teams. Leadership's not only those within formal leadership roles, like your manager or your directors, but each of you as well. There, there are informal um, leaders on every team. So it's who we are being that contributes to the culture of the team. Some may even argue that leadership is the foundation of culture. And all of us are leaders, and therefore, we all own and contribute to the culture. And that leader behavior has been shown to have a direct impact on the culture of an organization and its team. And then we have teamwork, team training, learning together, how teams interact. Do all members have an equal voice? Is there hierarchy? Think about your team and how do you interact? So do you have some folks who speak up more than others? And then, like, how can this really influence the dynamics of your team? And then communication. So having open and honest communication really creates trust within a team, which is linked to high-performing teams. So how does your team communicate? Do you communicate well? Are there some conversations you'd love to have but just don't feel safe doing so? Do you share all information with your team or just maybe your close workmates? Everyone has different communication styles, which is also really important to acknowledge when thinking about communication. So of these three non-technical skills, there's five main elements that we're going to discuss that play a significant role in how the non-technical skills materialize on a team. So although I'm going to be presenting them today one by one, what I'm really hoping is illustrated with this graphic is that they're all interrelated like cogs in a wheel, they all need some grease and attention to keep everything moving in a positive direction. First, we're going to talk about psychological safety and defining it. So the def one definition of psychological safety is the belief that a person can express themselves without negative consequences or express themselves without fear of negative consequences to their self-image, their status, or even their career. And psychological safety really describes the climate in which people feel free to express relevant thoughts and their feelings. And so when we think about psychological safety, we need to think about psychological health. 
which is comprised of the ability to think, the ability to feel and behave in a manner that really enables us to perform effectively in our work environment, in our personal lives, and even in society at large. So in psychological safe teams, people are willing to offer ideas, will have questions and answers, and most importantly, they're willing to fail. And so this is so crucial in organizations where knowledge is continuously changing and teams and individuals need to collaborate, which never more true than now during this pandemic. Psychological safety is really an essential element to high-performing healthcare teams and really imperative to a strong team culture. So there is evidence to suggest that psychological safety leads to organizational learning and team effectiveness, which then leads to positive outcomes. So psychological safety has been found to be one of the contributing factors that affect the personal engagement and disengagement at work. If people don't feel safe to contribute to the team, then how can they feel engaged in their work? So thinking about your team, does everyone speak up? Does everyone have an equal voice? Do you feel safe to speak your mind in a professional manner, no matter what the subject may be or who you even need to talk to? And there's, there's many reasons why psychological safety is important, and we should be assessing and addressing it in the workplace, like we have current and emerging legal and regulatory mandates that articulate that the employer's responsibility in this area, there's compelling financial incentives that exist really help reduce, reduce costs and improve the bottom line when improving psychological safety. And there's scientific and practical evidence that exists that demonstrate that the impact of those psychosocial factors that, that they have on employees' well-being. A great resource here is Guarding Minds at Work. At the end of this presentation, actually, I have a slide with a number of resources and link. This is a great one to check out. So now that we've defined culture and psychological safety and how the two are intertwined and how important it is in the workplace, we're going to talk a bit about the contributors and effects of psychological safety. And as mentioned earlier, these are all those cogs in the wheel. And I, would, I do want to note that we could probably take an entire day talking about each one of these, but uh, we'll get through what we can today in the, in the next hour. But what I'm hoping to get you to think about today is the idea of having an observer mindset. So as a member of your team, at what time do you step back and observe? And then at what time do you step back and participate? So when we discuss these strategies, I really encourage you to take an observer mindset and really think about what do you notice about your team when we discuss these topics? And really think about that through the lens of stepping back and, and in service of learning. So silence, let's talk about that as a first one. So it is most definitely a contributor and effect of psychological safety. Teamwork is full of meaningful silence. So don't get me wrong. And sometimes it's completely appropriate to stay silent working in team. If there's an emergency situation, the less non-critical chatter, the better. It's best if only one person is talking and everyone stops the unnecessary talking. But however, there may be times where team members are staying silent because they're scared to speak up. So it's crucial for a healthy workplace culture to that, that we really understand the role of silence in our team. It's easy when you're in a rush or accustomed to silence to just move ahead and assume folks are fine with the current plan. 
but please don't assume. It's very troublesome. So in fact, silent situations can often be the most volatile. So with your team, talk about when things get silent. When does this happen? Is it predictable? And what is it telling you about the situation? So these are a few strategies to think about when there is silence happening on your team. So thinking about those patterns of silence and naming that elephant, it is so important to start the conversation and why it's happening. Considering other ways to engage the team when silence becomes the norm and really modeling that behavior to address the silence when it's happening. Ultimately, we're asking the question, are people being silent because they're disengaged? And if so, how do you re-engage people? So I want to hear from you again. What do you feel are some key strategies to re-engage team members? Being curious. Collaboration. Being curious. Asking questions. Roundtable. Check-in. Yep. Asking for input. Team huddle, meeting, oh yes, liberating structures, recognition, make it so you can see everyone's things, respect, allowing the time, finding things in common, that's an excellent engagement strategy. I'll just shift these around. Eliminating hierarchy, perfect humor. I love humor. I think I put it in and add humor into everything that we do. Okay, I'm running out of space. So most of these were mentioned, but I'll just share with you these re-engagement strategies. So let's talk about upholding our core values. So this goes back to, well, I believe you guys actually touched on using the teamwork agreement template as a tool. And this is where your team would identify what your core values are. Again, I put this link in the resource um, list at the end, but I think Katie will pop it into the chat as well. So if, if you haven't seen the teamwork agreement before, check it out. I'll reference it a few times throughout the presentation today. But to really understand our core values, we need to get curious. We need to ask those open questions. You guys mentioned this on the slide. We need to ask those open questions in a way that really will help you understand what's on someone's mind so people are feeling accepted by you and you are truly interested in them. Another great re-engagement strategy is understanding and providing opportunities for growth. This is super important. Recognizing those top performers, human nature is to be motivated with positive reinforcement. Promoting transparency is super key. There will be times for discretion, but keeping people in the loop of being behind, like the behind the scenes work is really important. Otherwise, we're gonna, people are going to start sense making, meaning making up their own story about what's happening behind the scenes. So you also want to allow for honest feedback. And most importantly, if you're going to ask for feedback, make sure you're using it. Holding team members accountable. You can't always rely on the engaged people. Otherwise, they are going to burn out. So we need to lead by example here. Everyone needs to be accountable. Put that 
those accountability strategies in your teamwork agreement. Maybe not so applicable right now because we're in a pandemic, but revamping office space is a really good key strategy as well. It can help promote cross-communication and build stronger relationships on your team. And don't forget to assess your employee engagement. So how do you know where you're at if you don't assess it? So ultimately, when, we cut, when it comes to re-engagement, being realistic, being clear about responsibility, being flexible, and most importantly, remembering that re-engagement does not happen overnight. So another contributor to psychological safety is power distance index. And power distance index is based actually on some work of Geert Hofstede, who was a Dutch mechanical engineer who later switched to psychology. And he defines power distance index or PDI as the extent to which the less powerful members of organizations and institutions accept and expect that power is distributed unequally. You may also have heard this be referred to as power differential. So it's when it, ultimately it's when a person of low status perceives a high power distance. So they're, then they're less likely to change or to challenge, sorry, that person of higher status. So even think of um, a first year undergrad and a professor. That first year un undergrad is unlikely to challenge or question what a professor is lecturing about given that power differential. So that power distance greatly influences the interpersonal actions of people depending on how they view the power status of a situation. And power distance, unfortunately, has some deep roots in healthcare. And so for a long time, physicians were viewed as high status. So I think of my grandparents' generation who never questioned when they were given a doctor's orders what the doctor said went. They were not part of the care team. So between different professions in healthcare today, there still does exist some of that power distance, and it can contribute to a potential lack of psychological safety. So when people perceive high levels of power distance, they are going to be unlikely to speak up, and this can be a problem for the patient, the projects you're working on, for the functioning of your team, ultimately. And all of this can potentially lead to conflict and really negatively influence the culture. This is super important in primary care networks and team-based care as we attempt to build those interprofessional collaborative teams with shared and distributed leadership. It's crucial to flatten that team. There's really no place for power distance. And power distance can show up as an artifact as well in times in healthcare. Again, the way we do things around here. So the way we do things is that we are expected to refer to one another by our title, which represents a position in the hierarchy versus as an equal was something of equal value to bring. So I'd like you to think about how can the power distance be detrimental to healthcare teams as we work through this. And again, being aware of this and talking about it is absolutely crucial. So some common outcomes of power distance in the workplace, inevitably it can create a very unpleasant work environment. It can cause lack of communication between team members it can result in patient or resident harm or, and all of the above. So I've heard many stories over the years about staff working on a unit, coming onto a shift and seeing who is in your, as walking to the room and being happy versus seeing who's in the, on your shift and dreading your next 12, hour, 12 hours. And I also remember 
going into touch space meetings with a former supervisor. Super unpredictable environment. It made it very unpleasant. I'd be there to update on one thing and the conversations get totally shifted to something else. And I wasn't prepared for it. There was a huge power differential there. And I was just not assertive enough to really direct the discussion back to where we needed to talk about. So what can we do to help reduce power distance? So here's a few things, starting by having having an open discussion about the role power distance plays on your team. So really introducing the concept and discussing whether it's even an issue. If it is an issue, what are some strategies that your team could commit to employing? Put those in your teamwork agreement. We talked a bit about titles already. Reduce the use of titles is another strategy. So when we reduce the use of titles, it reduces hierarchy on the team. So make sure you're discussing reducing the use of titles within your team before implementing it because it might not land as you'd like, especially if it's a big change. So again, I used to have a former director I used to work with. She never used her title. Her introduction, she always introduced herself as part of the team. And it really reduced that power differential significantly. Ensuring that all team members know each other's names and roles, and this may sound super simple, but you wouldn't believe how often um, we come across this. Sometimes people have been working together for years and they actually don't really know what another person is doing. So this is particularly important uh, for ad hoc teams. So you might be coming together for a care conference about a patient, ensuring that everyone at that conference knows each other, knows their names, knows their roles, their role involved in the patient's care, heard stories about surgical staff who come together to work together on a case. Not all team members even know each other's names. So just ensure you're not assuming everyone knows each other and what each other's roles are. Huddles help build relationships. And huddles has been mentioned a couple times today when I've asked you to share. Really help build relationships and, and communication in a safe place. Again, there's huddle templates under the, the resources on the website and added at the end of the slides. We do have Dr. Sean Ebert today on the line, who is our clinical lead for primary and community care with the council. And Sean, I was hoping that you could maybe share some strategies. Uh, like, have you used any of these strategies? Are there other strategies that you found have worked for you? Totally put you on yeah. the spot. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, uh, <laughs> thanks, April. That's great. I just had my thoughts on all of the little comments in the chat, which are, are brilliant. And, and yeah, my, my background is real practice, and I've been in a number of environments in that emergency and EOR. And, and a lot of this reducing the power distance in my mind comes from the OR environment. And you mitigate a lot of this, number one, by looking at the strategies you've talked about and Something as simple as a huddle, it's amazing what, what that can do in terms of setting the framework for the ongoing discussion, even in a given day. And a lot of these strategies, in my mind, speak to the elements that are important for high-functioning teams. And a lot of that centers around trust, which, of course, is directly related to the relationships. And one of the best strategies to think, how do you encourage and develop relationships in your given work area? Now, in small centers, we tend to know everybody and we have that advantage of having those relationships. But when you're looking to 
systematically focus on that. Simple things like the huddles, CPD activities, simulations, like doing some process mapping, some quality exercises. Uh, if you start to ingrain these strategies in your regular work over time, the relationship elements improve dramatically and the power distance elements tend to go away. And all those other things you talked about, the clear roles, the effective communication, and if people are on the same page about that, it makes it a lot um, easier to make those transitions in the leadership. I'm a big fan of distributive leadership because at times we're all playing a leadership role, as you mentioned earlier. And, and again, if you start to embark on those simple strategies around functional um, elements like education, quality projects, huddles, the relationship parts take care of themselves and you eventually start to shift the culture. That's been my experience. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. So now we're going to take five minutes and we're going to go into some breakout rooms. What I would like you to do is go into your breakout rooms and just pick one, one strategy and talk a little bit about how you think you could incorporate it on your team. That didn't seem like long enough. <laughs> <laughs> never is. It never is. So thanks, everybody, for having that chat in the breakout room. So what I'd love is just if you could use the chat and just share one one key idea that you talked about on how you think you can incorporate our distance strategies on your team. Just give a minute for everyone to use first names. And we institutionalize the structure and stop using titles. And when people, oh, I went to quit. Then find when people are not feeling safe and why, perfect. Collaborative approach versus informative, start to huddle. Yeah. Bring from using titles and credentials, introduce yourself, who you are as a person. Check in with the human being, love it. Excellent, these are all great. Person before title, yeah. They seem super simple, but it's being consistent on these strategies and, and implementing them and practicing them, and it will take time. Transparency. I'll let people keep sharing and as we move on. So that's really great. Thank you, guys. Excellent engagement with this group today. This is make my job so much easier. Love the, to hear about the discussions you're having. All right. So what I will challenge you is to work on incorporating one key strategy with your team in the next two weeks. Keep that goal in the next two weeks, write it down and think about how you can incorporate that. So when we do look at power distance, this can really affect the way we interact and talk to each other. And we know that when there is a high power distance, we tend not to speak the same as when we're all in the same like level playing field. And this leads us to discuss mitigated speech. Mitigated speech is really any attempt to downplay or sugarcoat the meaning of what's being said. Do you mitigate your speech when you don't want to ruffle those feathers, softening what you really want to say? So thinking about when you want to ask your supervisor to do something for you, you maybe don't say, I'll need this by Monday. You mitigate. You might say, hey, don't bother if it's too much trouble. But if you have a chance to look at this over the weekend, that'd be wonderful. 
So Malcolm Gladwell explains that because a hint is the most mitigated form of speech, it's the hardest kind of request to decode and the easiest to refuse. So a lot of times if someone is giving a hint about a course of action to take, it's too easy to interpret them as simply making an observation. So not until after the fact do you realize, oh, I think they actually wanted that email sent out tomorrow, not next week. Really important to think about that. And are you being direct with your speech? And and the problem can compound if, A, those who prefer mitigated speech are intimidated by those who use direct speech, and or B, those who prefer mitigated speech really want those who use direct speech to like them and then try not to say anything that might cause relational tension. So there's ways to be direct and assertive with your speech without coming across aggressive or demanding. And often we can be passive or mitigate what we're trying to say to avoid conflict. But in the end, your communication will be clear. And then it actually just may end up in in creating conflict. And, And remembering the higher the power distance, the more we mitigate our speech. And it is Crucial to remember that the role of all team members is to consider whether or not they are being indirect or direct in their speech. And it's the role of leadership and inviting feedback and being curious and really digging a bit when people are being indirect or mitigating their speech. Mitigated speech really manifests itself in hierarchies within an organization. So being aware of those different hierarchies you're involved in as they're going to have an impact on what, the, what kind of language is being used. You know, just some examples we've talked about, even a few already today, job titles, age. Uh, I think I saw that a couple times in the chat, age, experience. Those are some things uh, that come up with, and directly related to mitigated speech. Sometimes even with age, people can show preference to someone more senior or in some high-tech company, com- cutting-edge companies, age can be seen as a detriment. So really understanding what your age is in comparison to the team you work with. That experience, same thing. Social, social status. People will use different degrees of mitigation depending on perceived social status of the person they're interacting with. And there's also something called HIPPOs, which is the stands for highest paid person's opinion. So how often do you say, oh, that's above my pay grade to make that decision? Sometimes that's appropriate, but often there's other times where pay grade shouldn't matter. But the lower paid employee just defers the decisions to higher paid employees and doesn't have a voice and they mitigate their speech. So again, just some examples uh, to be aware of. So let's take a look at a few strategies and let's start by taking a look at your own patterns. So it's easy to say that I tried to say something, but if we've fallen into a pattern where we're always using indirect speech with our teammates, then there's a good chance they're not hearing you in the way that you need. So do some self-reflection here and have an open discussion about the role of mitigated speech and how it plays out on your team. Is it even an issue on your team? If it is, what strategies can you use to address the mitigated speech that's happening? Creating, again, that teamwork agreement and embedding those strategies can be super powerful to frame how your team will work together and the language that you want to use on your team. And you may really want to get specific with by using some structured approaches and tools for expressing, sorry, expressing urgent 
communication on your team. So things like the F bar and the huddle, uh, you're probably all familiar with just a couple examples of some tools that can be used. So again, I would love to see you commit to using one of these strategies today. And I would love to see what you think about uh, you know, which strategy you might use. And while you are doing that, I'll uh, go back to you, Sean, again, for your input on mitigated speech and any thoughts just about how that plays a role. Yeah, absolutely. The At the end of the day, it, it comes out in, the, in bad ways. And I think when you look historically at the power differentials and some of the challenges seen in care situations, and again, I'm going to reflect back on some of the critical care elements, operating room, emergency departments, bad things happen when people don't have the ability to speak. And I was just thinking while you're talking, one of the best tools, again, creating opportunities to build relationship, to focus on common shared goals. So when you do debriefings, especially even around our general day and how it work and how did it go, and particularly uh, case debriefings when something has, has had a bad outcome, you then focus on the, the common goal and the breakdown of why these things occurred and invariably communication is going to come up. And that will then feed into the team agreement that, you know what, that's not the way we want to, to do business around here. And this is what we're going to do to, to move that ahead. And if you get in the habit of doing that on a systematized basis, that's when you start to see a real shift in, in how people work together. Yeah. So I'm just thinking the debrief and focusing on the common goals always is a good anchoring place. Yeah. Yeah. Great strategies on, on mitigating. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. So the last thing we're going to talk about today is triangulation, another contributor to psychological safety. So what will often emerge in the vacuum of indirect communication is triangulation. When we turn to a third party to talk about things instead of directly talking to the person that's involved. So now I think triangulation should be distinguished from having productive coaching conversations. We have these all the time. We need to bounce ideas off someone and get a new perspective. I'm not saying that you should stop doing that. But what I will say is that when the main objective behind going to a third party is to vent and develop an alliance, and in conflict theory, we call that building camp, building a camp, building camp, then you have triangulation. And when you're triangulating with other team members, it invariably will make things worse. So when the main objective behind going to that third party, inventing and developing that alliance, it's going to get you in trouble. So again, considering your own behavior at work. So just, you know, we're just ramping up on time here. So now let's think about how we can address triangulation when you see it happening. Being decisive. So how can you address triangulation when you see it happening? So much knowledge in that today. You've seen it happening or you've been involved in it. Setting boundaries, don't take part, don't engage. Great ways to be in the teamwork agreement, perfect. direct conversation. Awesome. Okay, thank you. 
Excellent. Thank you, you guys. Call it out. Openly speak about it. It's huge. So in addition to all that great input you all just had, when we are experiencing triangulation or any psychological safety issue for that matter, you can use what uh, we call the experience cube. When we think about the experience cube and using this tool, we can use it in any given moment and really reflect on these four elements. So observations, what, what can we actually see here? What are those facts? Those thoughts, what, are, what do we believe? What are we telling ourselves? What are our feelings? What are those emotions that, and behaviors that are happening? And then what are those wants? What do we want to happen? What do we want to do? What are our goals? So all four areas influence each other. And we can use this when we're seeing triangulation or when we're involved in it. And we can also use this when we are sense making. So let's talk about sense making again, just for a minute. So if we think about when we, when sense making is making, sense making happens, it's because we as humans don't like uncertainty and it can make us anxious. And so when we try, we try to make sense of it and we don't know what's going on. So we're going to make up that story in our minds that we find is plausible. And when we get anxious, we start confusing these stories with observations. So we think and talk as if our assumptions about what's going on are actually reality. This leads to bad decision making. And because again, when we sense make our story is usually not um, a positive one. So ultimately, when you are anxious or you don't like the way things are going, examine your own experience through the lens of this experience cube. What do you notice? What are you telling yourself? What do you feel and what do you want? We also need to be aware of our blind spots. So we may lean heavily on, say, the thought piece over the observations piece. I very much lean on the feelings element. So I have to be really aware that is my blind spot. But if your team is getting anxious about something, tell them what your experience is. Use all four quadrants of the experience cube and make sure you're identifying your thoughts and not presenting them as objective reality. You can say things like, this is what I believe is happening. This is what I think might be going on. This is why I think it happened. This is the story I'm telling myself. Put some resources at the, at the end of the presentation as well. I know we ha we're getting close to time and we have just a uh, few more minutes left. So we'll get through this as quickly as possible. If you have to sign off, it will be recorded if we go over. So quickly just addressing triangulation starts with reflection. So use that experience cube to reflect on your role and triangulation on your team. How do you address triangulation if you witness it occurring between two team members and think and keeping in mind those coaching questions and those coaching conversations versus triangulation? So if someone comes to you with an issue, I did see that. Can you tell me more how that landed with you? Have you managed this type of thing in the past? What do you need from that person? Alternatively, someone can be coming to you to triangulate with them. So again, shifting it to coaching. I'm curious why you'd say that. Can you describe exactly what happened? How did that feel? So how do you want to address it? The best thing you can do is change the conversation from building a camp to being a coach. So don't shut people down and blame them for talking, about, like talking to you because they're doing so because they have a legitimate experience they need to talk through. But just use those coaching questions to have the conversation. Get those agreed upon strategies in your teamwork agreement. And all these things will really help create psychologically safe environment and so people are, feel free to speak up.
some general strategies, back to self-reflection, leadership is integral, and not just formal leadership, but informal leadership. Formal leaders can set the tone, but informal leadership is just as important. Each person on the team has a role to influence how this happens. Trust, we talked about that a lot, and we saw that come up on the screen a lot. We could cover that topic in many webinars. Heart and soul of the team is trust. If you don't have trust, there's going to be low levels of psychological safety, poorer outcomes. And have an open discuss discussion about this as the first step. Facilitated collaboration across disciplines really helps promote trust and psychological safety. So having different disciplines work with each other, just like in team-based care, is super effective. And asking for feedback is huge as well. There are some virtual tips. I'm going to maybe just skip through these because we're running out of time. But just really knowing virtual tools that you can use to, to engage pre, during, and post is super important. Understanding psychological safety, assessing it, understanding actions and behaviors, and really trying to train up and have subject matter experts in psychological safety is super helpful to, for sustainment. Uh, a quick piece on measurement. It can be as simple as asking these questions to really assess where psychological safety is on your team and make a plan for how you're going to ask the questions, how often, make sure you communicate the results back to your team, create some visuals. And lastly, be curious, be vulnerable, be human, actively build that safe environment, listening, stop people from interrupting each other. Make yourself available for quick chats. Reframe failure. It's inevitable. So reframe it as an opportunity to learn. Destigmatize feedback is huge. Regularly asking for it and sharing it is really important. We're going to skip the giveaway takeaway. I'm going to quickly hand it over to Kelly because I know we're over time. Thank you so much, April, for such um, an in-depth and engaging talk about psychological safety. I have so many takeaways that I can't even begin to describe them, but I just wanted to say thank you again for, for taking us through this and for providing such a, a valuable talk for us. And thank you, Sean, for sharing your experience. But also thank you for everybody that has attended today and taken time out of their day for being so engaged. I saw some incredible conversations and sharing of experiences and resources happening in the chat, which is exactly what we're hoping to create um, with this type of learning series and this type of forum. One of the things I did want to leave you with as food for thought before I go into our evaluation and some wrap-up comments is, although the genesis for having psychological safety as a topic for this webinar came from our February talk on high-functioning teams, I'm just so mindful of the linkages to our last webinar uh, addressing racism in team-based care and some of the implications that Harmony had highlighted for, for the team-based care world. Specifically, what's coming to mind is that speak up culture and how this all links together. So just wanted to leave that as food for thought for folks who are still with us. Thank you for sticking around for a few more minutes. Our next webinar is on May 20th, and we'll be um, hosting a discussion with some team members from diverse locations, backgrounds, and teams about their unique experiences in team-based care and more information on those speakers coming soon. So thank you again for joining us today. Have a great rest of the day.
Thanks, everybody, so much for your great participation. Thanks for listening today. I highly recommend uh, everyone go check out teambasedcarebc.ca and specifically some of the resources that were discussed in this webinar. There's a great tool for team huddles as well as an amazing team agreement template. Thanks so much for joining. Mm-hmm.